E4E is brought to you by the University of Delaware Partnership for Public Education. In an effort to increase the availability and accessibility of UD expertise to Delaware's P12 educators, leaders, and policy influencers, we have invited faculty members from the University of Delaware's nine colleges to share their research. We hope you enjoy today's critical conversation and consider ways you might be able to leverage relevant research and UD expertise to advance policy and transform practice. My name is Liz Farley Ripple. I'm the director of the Partnership for Public Education and also serve as a faculty member in the School of Education. I'll be the host for today's episode where we are joined by Dr. Ken Shores, Assistant Professor of Education in the University of Delaware's College of Education and Human Development. Dr. Shores' work focuses on issues of educational inequality, including addressing racial and ethnic and socioeconomic inequality in test scores, school disciplinary policy, and school resources. Prior to joining UD, he was an assistant professor at Penn State University, where he received the National Council on Measurement in Education's annual award for exceptional achievement. Before he began his prestigious career as an academic, he was a middle school teacher on the Navajo Nation. Today, we've asked Dr. Shores to join us to talk about school finance reform and its role in reducing educational inequality. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Shores. Uh, thank you very much for having me here. Happy to be here. School finance has been and continues to be a trending topic for educational policy, with many competing claims about the role of funding in school quality and outcomes. So let's get right to it. Some individuals might argue that school funding reforms aren't effective. To put it plainly, does money really matter? And do school finance reforms have an effect on opportunity gaps and outcomes? Yeah, so as, uh, as you mentioned, this is a, an old debate in education. Uh, there are these old papers uh, by Rikanashek and others published in Ed Researcher and uh, Ed Review, uh, where they try to kind of think through systematically whether this question uh, could be answered, and there was a lot of disagreement about it. Uh, the big issue with that old literature is that they didn't really have very good uh, opportunities for high-quality research design. And so I think basically what's happening now is we've had kind of a, a resurgence in research trying to answer this question. And the research has been remarkably, I mean, really, truly remarkably consistent in the answers that have been generated. And so the, the answer to the first question, which is, do school finance reforms matter? Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, research has shown in many different contexts uh, that school finance reforms often catalyzed uh, through state Supreme Court rulings or other uh, major legislative reform have worked to increase the level of spending to low-income school districts. And so we know that pretty, pretty well. So then this other question, which is, okay, you've introduced additional funding to low-income students. What happens to those student academic outcomes? And here, again, I, it's almost kind of shocking how robust this literature is since uh, about 2014. Uh, and the answer to the question is yes, that when you introduce new funds to these school districts, uh, academic outcomes increase, both in terms of test scores, but also uh, high school completion. And for students that can be followed into post-secondary and the labor market, we also see increases in things like wages and college completion. So uh, when I say the literature is robust, it's it really is. Since 2014, there have been about a dozen papers that have been published in top journals looking at this question, uh, evaluating the question in different contexts, using different data, different methodology. 
And uh, the results are pretty consistent there, which is not that typical in, in quantitative research. Uh, in terms of opportunity gaps, uh, you know, I do think that outcomes between poor and non-poor students, for example, uh, have narrowed as a result of these reforms. Uh, but we shouldn't think that ed ed educational spending is a, is a panacea for these things. It's one input into uh, the very many different types of inputs that you would really need to eliminate these types of gaps. Uh, and the other thing I should say is uh, school finance reforms don't target uh, you know, racial ethnic minority students, black students, for example. And so there is really not evidence at the moment about whether or not these changes in educational spending have also narrowed other kinds of opportunity gaps for other subgroups that we have reason to care about. Uh, and so that I think is kind of a, an outstanding question, whether or not these, these reforms are really helping to uh, eliminate all forms of systemic inequality. Uh, but we do see that they do uh, help to reduce uh, academic achievement gaps uh, between poor and non-poor students. You mentioned that findings are consistent across a lot of different settings and contexts. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also sort of important to think about how school funding policy might vary across those contexts. So what should our listeners understand about that variation in school funding nationally? Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of uh, stuff that you could take away uh, about what's different and what's similar uh, across states. Uh, so one thing I like to emphasize, uh, because it runs counter to people's expectations, is that ed finance has really changed a lot since 1980. Uh, so prior to 1980, schools, school revenues came from localities, so local property taxes. And what that meant was that if you were a high property wealth district, you could bring in a lot of money to your school with relatively little tax rates. So you could pay less in taxes and still have very high quality uh, school spending. And other districts that had very low property wealth uh, were really stuck. They either were gonna have very low spending or would have to tax themselves at a very high rate. Uh, and so I think one of the things is people sort of think that that pre-1980 funding mechanism is what persists today, and that's not true. And so since 1980, the states have taken on a much greater role in funding schools. And so uh, now states are spending about 50%, or they're rather they're contributing 50% of revenues to, to educational budgets uh, at the state level. So they're, they're really trying to help uh, equalize spending in that way by, by taking it away from local property tax bases. Uh, and so what that means uh, uh, consequently is that for nearly all states aside from three states, uh, if you are a poor district, you're getting a little bit more total revenues uh, than a non-poor district. So once you include local revenues and state revenues and federal revenues, uh, and federal revenues aren't very much, it's about 7%, but they're pretty targeted. The optimums are coming to Title I, which is a, a measure of income. Uh, so when you add all those revenue sources together, uh, poor students are getting a little bit more. So the real kind of question here is what states uh, are helping poor students the most? and not so much, are they giving poor students more or less? Uh, because the question is like, how much more money do you need to try to equalize outcomes? Uh, probably it's a lot, and the differences are relatively modest between poor and non-poor students. Um, so we can evaluate states in, in terms of how progressive they are. Um, so uh, as I said, within states, uh, they tend to be progressive with varying levels of progressivity. Poor students are doing a little better. So the other kind of key thing to, re 
to know about at finance at the national level is the difference in spending across states is really, really different. So Southern states tend to be very low spending states. Northeastern states tend to be pretty high spending states. And then there's a lot of variation across the Midwest and the West Coast. And because kids are not distributed equally across states, what that means is if you are a black student or Hispanic student or a low income student, you are more likely to live in a state that is a low spending state. Uh, those differences across states really do translate into a lot of meaningful inequality, but the inequality is driven by between state differences in spending. So even these low income, uh, low spending states, they tend to be progressive within the state. They'll spend a little bit more on low, low income students. But those students, all of the students in those states tend to be low spending students relative to states like New Jersey and Massachusetts. And because those states also happen to have more poor students, on average for the population of kids in the United States, they're disadvantaged. And so there's this kind of nuance to the question where within states, they're modestly progressive, but between states, there is this kind of regressivity because some states are low spending and those states tend to have more low income students. And that is a real challenge because we don't have any policy tools right now to really kind of kickstart spending in these lower spending states. Uh, because first of all, these states tend to be a bit poorer, so they just don't have a lot of you know, tax base to increase spending anyway. Uh, and so how do you get these states to, to increase their spending to get on par with these more high spending states? You know, something like federal policy would be uh, necessary there, uh, but the federal government just doesn't have this kind of authority to to force states to spend more. And we're talking like a lot of money, like they're spending maybe eight, nine thousand dollars per pupil, whereas a state like uh, Delaware, which is not that high spending, is spending eighteen thousand dollars per pupil. So those are really, really big differences between states uh, that is not an easy problem to solve. Um, the other thing uh, I, I wanted to emphasize here is that in this context of school finance reform is uh, there has been a lot of litigation since uh, 1970. Uh, and even since 1990, there has been a lot of uh, court uh, activity brought about by suits that people have, have brought to sue the state's K-12 finance systems. And so since 1990 alone, there have been uh, 60 uh, Supreme Court rulings, state Supreme Court rulings, sorry, uh, or major legislative reform uh, affecting 27 states. So more than half of the country have been experiencing multiple suits uh, and a lot of litigation trying to kind of force uh, the finance system to be more equitable, to provide better educational opportunities uh, for more disadvantaged students, traditionally disadvantaged students. Uh, and this litigation has been effective. It's on average, we see in my own research here that when states are sued and, and the court rules in favor of the plaintiffs, so they say, look, your way of funding schools is unconstitutional. You need to do something about it. We see that uh, on average, lower income school districts increase their revenues by 6%, which is a, a non-trivial amount. And we'll be able to kind of contrast that 6% with what happened in Delaware recently uh, in a moment. Um, so that, you know, is a good thing. Like this, these suits have really brought about change. Um, 
but there is some variation there. Some states have been more successful at bringing about change and other states have been less successful. And trying to understand what explains that variation in, in reform is one of the things that we're trying to do now. So I think this brings up um, some really important issues and I wanna do sort of a, a check for our listeners in terms of understanding the larger context of uh, school funding and school funding policy. So what are some of those variables uh, that state and local policymakers mm-hmm. should be considering and understanding when they're, when they're thinking about school funding reform? So I think funding systems across states tend to be both, it's kind of ironic, uh, they tend to be both very similar and also very diverse. And so, uh, you know, for what I mean by this in terms of the similarity is that, uh, so there's 50 states in the United States and, and 40 of these states have what's called a foundation plan. And what a foundation plan does is it guarantees uh, students a certain level of spending. So for example, you could say the foundation plan that the state sets guarantees students at least $12,000 per pupil. And so the way this works is the state determines how much property wealth there is in a given district. And they say, okay, we're gonna assume that you can tax yourself at like you know two or 3% or whatever. And so based on our assessment of your property values and this 3% that we think you're gonna tax yourselves out, you can contribute $4,000. And so you can only contribute $4,000. we are going to give you the $8,000, which now gets you back up to $12,000. For other school districts that can tax themselves, uh, again, the same tax rate, but they have much more property wealth, they can bring in $10,000 to themselves. The state says, okay, you can bring yourself $10,000. we are only going to give you $2,000. So this is how the state ensures a kind of level of equity. And this is why we see for almost all states that there's parity between poor and non-poor students because now property wealth is not really driving your school finances. The state is just gonna make up the difference whatever you can't bring in yourself. As I said, 40 states have something like a foundation plan. In addition, about 40 states also have categorical aid as a component of their funding formula. And what the categorical aid does is it says, okay, we're gonna give you a little bit of additional money based on the number of special population students you might have in your school district, which can include things like ELL, IEP, students with IEP plans, or uh, qualifying for free lunch. And so that gives a little bit of extra money to school districts that might have more uh, students that are a bit more expensive to teach. Uh, And then on top of that, about two thirds of states have uh, what are called spending limits. And what a spending limit does is uh, the state restricts how much additional money the district can bring in on itself. So if a district can bring in, you know, $12,000, which gets it to the, uh, the foundation plan limit, If you didn't have these spending limits, the district could say, look, we're gonna tax ourselves a little bit higher so we can get over that 12,000, so we can have more resources. And two thirds of states actually restrict how much districts are able to do that. So these three things together are present in either two thirds of states in the country or or 80% of states in the country. And that's what kind of creates this, you know, basic basket of parity for each of the states. And so that's why I say that there's a, a lot of similarity between states, this is what they have in common. Uh, But at the same time, uh, there's a ton of diversity and the diversity comes in the form of what is the foundation plan limit? Some states set the foundation plan limit to be 12,000, some set it to be 18,000, some set it to be 24,000. So there's tons of variation across states in what the level of funding is guaranteed to be. 
And on top of that, states will differ in terms of what they say the categorical aid ought to be. So some states are going to give like an extra couple bucks to the number of poor students you might have in the district. Some states are going to give a couple $200 for the number of poor students you have in the district. So those differences across states are enormous. And, and in, that, in that sense, no state is the same. They're all incredibly unique in these sort of nuances of the plans, despite having these basic components being so similar to each other. So I think that's kind of a, it's important to recognize that irony when we're thinking about uh, school finance across states. Uh, but the long and short of it is, is that, you know, ed finance doesn't have to be that complicated. Um, if you have a foundation plan and you want to give a little bit of extra money to certain kids, you have a categorical aid plan. Uh, that's, that's not that hard. You just set the, set the plan. The challenge is for states like Delaware, uh, which is uh, you have to figure out a way to create routine uh, evaluations of property values. So you have to know how much the properties are worth in order to determine what the district can raise itself. And for states like Delaware, which haven't updated their assessments for over 30 years, that is a really hard environment to set laws because now people have basically been underpaying in property taxes for their entire lives and across generations. And if you were to introduce a law now that said, okay, we're gonna reappraise all properties in Delaware, people's taxes are gonna shoot up by 300% or more. And that is a difficult problem to solve. Other states have it figured out where they say, look, we're gonna do uh, reassessments every three years. It's on the calendar. So there's no surprises. Every three years, you know you're going to go up or down a little bit, but it's not going to be a, a total shock to you. And then the state has a pretty current and accurate record of how much you can tax yourselves at, how much money you can bring in locally, and they just give you the difference. In principle, it's a fairly simple thing, but you have to kind of get over this hump, which is, you know, making the properties actually accurately assessed. And I'm not quite sure how we're going to do that in Delaware, uh, but if we could get over that hurdle, then I think it would be relatively smooth sailing after that. You raised some really important issues about sort of where the funding comes from and those sort of manipulable variables that, that states have to work with. And of course, you know, you your last point about needing to address the property assessment is obviously a big one here in Delaware and one that's been wrestled with um, annually for as long as I've lived here. Right. <laughs> um, well, well before I got here. <laughs> um, an added layer of complexity, right, is that we've sort of hit a really challenging economic time. And, and many states, including Delaware, are wrestling with unexpected school funding challenges or anticipated school funding challenges due to the pandemic. So how do we see this impacting uh, school finance reforms moving forward, in part because we're also increasingly concerned about issues of equity? at the same time as we're, we're sort of experiencing this um, funding issue. So what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a really great question. And, and I, I don't know exactly what the, the future will hold, though I think uh, like a lot of people, I'm, I'm worried about it. Um, so as I said, you know, for the past three decades or, and longer uh, has been very litigious. Uh, there's been a lot of suits and, and the, the litigation has really helped uh, increase spending to low-income districts. And so uh, to your question, I think after COVID, uh, which we also you know, should be mindful of that the Great Recession wasn't that long ago and lots of state budgets have really just only recovered to pre-recession spending uh, a couple of years ago. 
And so the Great Recession hit, knocked budgets way down. It took a long time to get them back. So they kind of just got back to where they were before the recession. And now COVID, which is going to be another disaster for local local budgets and state budgets. And so I think the, the concern is that there might be uh, fewer lawsuits uh, and the courts and the legislatures are going to be less interested in hearing these suits because they have much more financial pressures to kind of deal with. And I think that would be uh, unfortunate. And so this is, you know, this I don't know if this is borne out by the empirical data very well, but it's kind of my own my own belief a little bit about how the world works is that you have to kind of remind states about their obligations to more disadvantaged students. And these lawsuits are sort of periodic reminders that you have an obligation to take care of uh, students who have a harder time taking care of themselves uh, in terms of their finances. Um, and we actually do see this a little bit in some of my own research. So we look at actually states that have experienced uh, multiple school finance reforms, so multiple suits. So you think about this, like New Hampshire, for example, has had about nine suits, nine, nine lawsuits, in which the New Hampshire State Supreme Court ruled that their state finance system was unconstitutional. And the reason why it had nine suits is because the court would rule and the legislature wouldn't do anything about it. So then there would be another suit and then the court would rule again, and this legislature wouldn't do anything about it. And nine times, you can, that, and since 1990, it's a lot of lawsuits. And so, like, you have to kind of like shake them a little bit and say, like, hey, you have an obligation here. And um, and what we see actually is that states that have had uh, multiple suits and multiple court rulings, those are the states that actually have the bigger impacts on average. So states that have had SFR, school finance reforms, uh, those that get sued a lot, and and the courts are really active in that they do seem to kind of increase uh, the, the results of the, the suits. And so anyway, I, I do think that if, if you don't kind of take this, if you let me use this metaphor of like shaking somebody by their, their the cuff of the shirt, um, I think if you don't do that, then you sort of go back to the way things were beforehand. And that I think is, is my concern is that you'll sort of resort, resort back to, or re, sorry, revert back to, uh, this level of inequity that existed prior to this le legislative activity. I think that's I think that's really interesting. I think that's a fascinating trend in the use of the judicial system to mobilize education policy. I think it's that's really interesting. Um, we also know from prior research that uh, recessions like the Great Recession, which you mentioned, impacts student outcomes and district spending, right, which you've also shared are related. Um, how do you see the pandemic affecting spending patterns and student outcomes related to funding? Uh, yeah, so I can make uh, two comments here, uh, both somewhat related to work that I've done already on this. Um, so one, uh, you know, during the Great Recession, if we can use that as kind of like an, a, a historical case study for what's happening now during COVID in terms of what might happen to uh, the budget cuts due to COVID. Uh, so during the Great Recession, we had the American uh, Recovery and Reinvestment Act, ARA. Uh, and ARA was like this big chunk of money, like $100 billion that was to go to state and local districts. It, it was going to states who would then kind of spend it on school districts who had uh, lost money due to the Great Recession. Uh, so by my own calculations, which we're doing for this book chapter, and actually uh, kind of like a retrospective, uh, is in the first year that ARA was allocated, it met 96% of the losses due to the Great Recession. So schools lost $100, say, they lost a lot more than 100, but say they lost 100, 
Ara basically gave them $96 back, which is crazy. It's a very effective policy. It gave them almost complete coverage for their losses. But it was a lot of money for the first year. It covered 96%. But then Ara quickly started to evaporate. But the effect of the recession did not. And so then by year two, uh, Ara was only covering about half of losses. And then by year three, it was only covering 8% of losses. And by year four, it was covering nothing. So Aura disappeared, it evaporated, but the recession's lingering effects on state finances uh, persisted for a long, long time. And that was devastating. So these educational budgets kept on falling apart and federal efforts to, to kind of salvage those declines had gone away. And the willpower to, to help out localities and states had gone, it was completely gone. And so we see this kind of debate happening now. They just passed uh, uh, stimulus to try and help unemployed workers. They just passed it yesterday. And explicit in this legislation is they're not going to help localities and state budgets. So they're going to provide unemployment insurance, but they're not going to help out state budgets. And, you know, that's affecting kids. These are the kids and teachers and things like that where, you know, firing workers, classes are going up. Uh, it's making it harder to teach students. And so then uh, the second question is, well, do we care? Uh, so we have this really robust literature that when you spend more on kids, it helps them. Uh, is it also true that if you take money away from kids in schools, it hurts them? And here there is not as much literature on this, but there are two papers, one by myself and one by uh, uh, Kirbo Jackson, uh, which was just published recently. And we both find the same thing, which is that during uh, budget cuts that took place during the Great Recession, uh, student academic achievement declined. Uh, and what we find in my own paper is that there's about a one-to-one -one correspondence. And so we uh, basically do this kind of like benchmarking exercise where we say, okay, if you look at the school finance reform literature and you increase spending by $1,000, what happens to student achievement? And then in the Great Recession, we say, okay, you take $1,000 away from students, what happens to their student achievement? And we see almost like a one-to-one -one correspondence where $1,000 going up helps them by some number, I can't remember, like 0.06 or something like that. Take $1,000 away and it goes down by 0.06. And so w the concern here is that uh, these budget cuts to states are going to be persistent and they're going to outlast federal efforts to try to save budgets. And I think we're already observing now that federal interest in protecting state budgets has already disappeared. And the consequence of this is that it will hurt student achievement and that the pain is going to be especially concentrated among lower lower income students. And so we see this from a lot of literature where if you, if you give a dollar to a low income student versus a high income student, that dollar goes farther for the low income student. And if you take a dollar away from a low income student and a dollar away from a high income student, the dollar hurts more for the low income student. And it's not that surprising, right? Like parents can provide a lot of substitute uh, educational goods to their kids if they have the resources to do so. But if a parent's lost their job on top of now the state firing teachers from that kid's classroom, uh, that's a lot of pain to inflict on a child. And that's kind of what's happening now because of COVID. And I think it's going to continue to happen unless we really, really try to do something about it. I think that's a great call to action and a reminder that the effects of the pandemic and the effects of the sort of downstream policy of, uh, implications are not equally felt, right? So. So this is really, um, we've always had equity issues that we needed to focus on and this just 
you know, is a reminder that it's even more urgent now than it was before. Yeah. So that also, that also brings up, of course, you know, our local context. Uh, So uh, school finance reform is a hot topic in Delaware due to a lawsuit, right, which you've been talking about that resulted in a settlement of about $35 million in opportunity funding over the next two years. So do you think that there are lessons that can be applied from the history of school finance reforms and some of the work that you've talked about that could inform the direction the settlement will take and who will benefit? Um, yeah, so um, I, the Delaware settlement's interesting because you know we should probably try to interpret it in the context of when it took place. So it's it, the settlement just happened during this COVID period. And so, you know, if, the state had been sued even just a year and a half ago, we don't know whether the outcome would have been different. And so I think, you know, so let me just give a number here and then we can talk about how we might interpret it. Uh, So Delaware, as you noted, gets $35 million in this opportunity funding. And that 35 million is about one and a half percent, 1.4% of its annual budget. So, So these big numbers, we have to kind of always kind of contextualize them to make sure we're putting them in the context of how much the state is spending. So Delaware spends about $2.4 billion in K-12 spending, and that was in 2017. And Delaware is a very small state, right? So when you see big numbers, you have to remember that, you know, they're spending even bigger numbers in total. And so 1.4%. And as I said earlier, on average, school finance reforms tend to increase uh, revenues by 6, 6%. So 1.4 obviously is less than 6%. And so maybe we could be disappointed uh, that it's not as large as many school finance reform results have been by historical standards. But as I, as I said, I think it's important to kind of recognize when this took place. And so it's happening right during COVID. Budget cuts are really, really uh, onerous right now for states, all states. And so, uh, you know, maybe this 35 million actually is, is really good because it's the thing that will help some schools sort of ride out this COVID-induced recession a little better than they would have otherwise. And I don't have uh, a lot of context knowledge about in terms of how this money came about, but I have just heard some some talk that it was it was hard to get even this 35 million. And so I think we should probably appreciate it for what it can do while recognizing that it is not large by historical standards. So second, uh, just to kind of give it some additional context here, uh, Delaware gives about $18,000 per pupil, which is above the national average, but falls behind neighboring states. So states like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland, lower than what PA spends, it's quite a bit lower than what New Jersey spends, and it's on par with what Maryland spends. So just to do a little uh, back of the envelope calculation, uh, New Jersey spends $3,700 more per pupil than Delaware. So if you take that $3,700 and multiply it by the 130,000 kids that are in K-12 education in Delaware, that's $500 million. So for Delaware to catch up to New Jersey, it would require an investment of $500 million, which is obviously a lot more than $35 million. So then the kind of question is, okay, where do we get this 500 million? So the other thing uh, to recognize about Delaware is its funding formula is uh, kind of antiquated. So as I said earlier, about 40 states use foundation plans. Uh, Delaware is one of those 10 states that doesn't have one. Uh, And so Delaware's funding system is a little little odd in that it gets a lot of its money from the state. So 60% of this 18,000 is coming from the state, which is well above what New Jersey and Maryland and PA are contributing from their states. And it's only getting about 35% uh, from local property, local revenues, which is well below 
what are being uh, what are uh, states like New Jersey, PA, and Maryland are getting from their local revenues contributions. So Delaware is already kind of, in a sense, over-invested from the state, even though it would cost $500 million to catch up to a state like New Jersey. And so if the state wants to chip in that money to try to narrow that gap a little bit, it would even be a greater contributor to, to Ed Finance. The alternative, of course, is to try to get localities to, to pull their weight a little bit more. And as we mentioned earlier, that is a big political challenge now, given how out of date these assessments are. Um, and so then the very last thing I'll say is, uh, as I said earlier, most states in the United States are progressive. And the real kind of question is, how progressive are they? We shouldn't let the standard be, are you progressive, yes or no? The standard should be, are you spending enough money to help your more disadvantaged students uh, catch up as best you can to narrow this opportunity gap? And there, in terms of equity, Delaware is uh, is not doing that great. Uh, so their students in poverty actually get uh, a little less than their students that are uh, not poor as of 2017. But it's basically the same. So the poor students and non-poor students in Delaware get basically the same. That's quite different from other states. Uh, in other states, poor students are getting a lot more. In New Jersey, a, a low-income student on average gets $2,000 more than a non-poor student, $2,000 more. And in Delaware, they get no dollars more. Uh, black students in Delaware get about $200 more than white students. Uh, ELL students get about $500 more than non-ELL students. Uh, but in New Jersey, which is kind of the state I'm using as a baseline, ELL students are getting $500 more more than non-ELL students, but black students are getting $800 more. And then as I, uh, I overstated a little bit, poor students are getting about $1,300 more than non-poor students. So if you look at Delaware in isolation, it's like, oh, it's doing okay. It's either at parity or it's a little progressive. But when you then compare it to a state like New Jersey, it's, it's quite a bit behind. And so, you know, I think we should have a standard that is not just are you at parity, but are you doing enough? And in that standard, Delaware also is kind of falling behind. And so in terms of what's next, uh, I think it's uh, a tough to predict. If we hadn't had COVID, I think probably this suit would not have stuck, that the settlement would not have been considered sufficient to meet the needs that are happening at the state level because there's quite a bit of stuff that needs to get fixed. I think we have to increase local effort. We have to make sure that our more vulnerable populations are properly uh, given the school resources that they need, uh, among many other issues that are happening in Delaware. Uh, but with COVID, I, I don't know what will happen next. Um, I hope that this 35 million is is uh, not the last we hear. And I know that the state is uh, doing some independent consulting to make sure that its funding formula is adequate, sufficient, efficient, equal. You know, what that will actually mean down the road, I don't know. But they are looking to do some internal evaluation to make sure that they can build a more equitable funding formula. And so I think we just have to make sure that we keep uh, pressure on the state to uh, make sure it maintains its obligation to its population so that it can uh, you know, try to you know, elevate both the level of spending that is contributing and also how equitable that spending is allocated. Um, yeah, so uh, the last piece here is like, how should we consider uh, how this settlement will be used? And so as I, I've mentioned, I think there might be some reticence moving forward in terms of additional suits that are gonna take place. Uh, though I do think in the absence of COVID, this settlement probably would not be the last we hear because it is small by historical standards. 
Uh, but because COVID is here and budgets are so constrained, I'm not sure exactly whether there will be uh, future litigation and additional settlements taking place. But the state has appointed a commission to try to evaluate its funding formula to determine whether it will be equitable and efficient moving forward. So there will be some kind of reflection on the funding formula moving forward. In the current moment here, we have this $35 million and I think the, the key thing to, to do here is to focus and make sure that this $35 million settlement is reaching the students who need it the most and then ensuring that the money is spent to benefit those students as best that it can. So even though the 35 million might not be the amount that we would want, uh, we have this opportunity to, to use it and we should use it as effectively uh, as we can to improve outcomes of students who are traditionally disadvantaged. This has been really fascinating and I think you've raised some critically important pieces of information for our listeners in terms of how school finance works, right? What are those variables that states have to work with, work with when thinking about policy? Um, the, the issues of equity, right? The role of lawsuits, and, and of course the context of our current pandemic. And I really appreciate that you pointed us at the right direction in your last comment here about really needing to remind um, ourselves as a state about our obligation to all students and to uh, addressing those needs so we can have <clears throat> more equitable opportunities and outcomes for all students. You can learn more about Dr. Shore's work from a few pieces he's recently put out. Uh, first is a working paper called Spending More on the Poor with his colleague Chris Candelaria, and you can find that as part of the Annenberg Ed Working Paper series online. He also has a recent piece in AERA Open, which is an open access journal called Schooling During the Great Recession with Matthew Steinberg. We'll post these links below. Dr. Schwartz, thank you again so much for being here. We appreciate all of the insight you've shared and really looking forward to sharing this with our stakeholders. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of E4E, brought to you by the University of Delaware Partnership for Public Education. We hope you join us for our next episode featuring Dr. Anne Aviles and a discussion of housing instability and Delaware youth. For more information about the work being done by the Partnership for Public Education, please visit our website at www.udel.edu forward slash PPE.